to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. We find ourselves in an interesting point because I think um, this chapter is something that we really miss. Uh, what it teaches is something we really miss in the Christian church today. Now, I don't know how many of you guys were uh, raised in church, but I was not. So, uh, but I still am a partaker of many times the things that are they're good teaching, they're good sound doctrine, they're good practices, uh, but they don't go the distance. Um, and I say that because um, in chapter 1, Paul has already uh, written to the Thessalonians, and he said this. Basically, he tells them how they were born as a church. He reminds them of their birth. Like a good parent would, they always talk about, you know, especially on birthdays, you know, we always tell Lucy, hey, when you were born, this is what was going on, and this is what mom and dad had to go through, and, and, and then we got to meet you for the first time. You know, the celebration of birth, new life. And Paul is excited about their birth as believers because it's really the very beginning. But unfortunately, many times in church, we focus all on the birth or the being born again of new believers, and we stop there. And so naturally, we would have spiritual infants crawling around the church, spitting up on themselves, and never coming to maturity. And you know, of all, if you've had children at all, if your children never got past the, you know, wearing diapers phase, which is expensive, but it's also nasty. You know, if they never got past the needing milk, you know, my, my son gets up and he wants milk, and my daughter still gets up and she wants something to drink, and she can start to get it on her own. We're teaching her to feed herself. But if you never get past that phase, then there's never anything else accomplished other than just continually having to pour into them. Now, you still always have to pour into your children, but it looks different, and that's what we're going to see today in Paul's letter to the Thessalonican church. But in chapter 2, he then writes about how they were nurtured as a church. So in chapter 2, we see that they were nurtured because they welcomed, they, they heard the word of God. They received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. God breathed into individuals, and he had them by their pens write the words that we have in our Bibles and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that it was inspired or God-breathed is the literal, literal translation. So it's not the word of men, but it's the word of God breathed into us uh, anew. But he said it's important. He used two words for, for receiving the word of God. There was a word that said to hear with the ear. Remember, Jesus always said, he who has an ear, let him hear what I say, or what the Spirit is saying to the churches when the letter is written by uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. But there's also another word for receive, which means to welcome the word. See, we can hear the word of God all day. I can sit at work all week long and listen to nothing but the Bible playing through my iPod or my, my cell phone, and I can just listen to it constantly. But if I don't welcome it, if I don't receive it deeper than just through my ears, then it can have no effect. It's like hard soil that you try to put seed on top of. It just sits there, and then birds come and eat it. It never goes into the soil, and therefore it can never come up and produce fruit like we would want to in our gardens. And so in the same way, we are the Lord's garden, and He nurtures us through the Word, but we also learned last week He nurtures us through the Word and through affliction. And now the word I'm all for, but the affliction part I'm not so for. Uh, persecution is not something I look forward to. But what we see through this church is that because of 
their firm foundation in the Word of God being their livelihood, their bread that they eat on. It changed who they were as people. And because of that, because they were so different than the rest of the world, it says they were persecuted. Now, persecution is something that many people experience on many different levels, whether you're a Christian or not. But he's saying they were being persecuted because they were followers of Jesus and people could tell that. They were persecuted not for being weird, but for being disciples, for doing the commandments of God, for living them out in their daily lives. It looks so vastly different than the rest of the world around them that they were persecuted for it. They were uh, told to stop doing it in many cases. But what it says there in chapter, two, or chapter 1 is that um, in verse 7, excuse me, verse 6, he says, "...you became followers of us and of the Lord, and having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe." So they became examples to all the other churches because they were willing to trust the word of God even though they were afflicted by outside circumstances. And I think that that's important because what we want to do is I will follow the Lord if it's easy. And then if it doesn't get easy, I'm going to go back to what I did before. But that's not faith. That's walking by sight. And what the Lord gives us this opportunity to see through this church is that because they were willing to follow the Lord and to do His will, even though they were being persecuted and afflicted, they were examples to all the other believers around them. And so he says in chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, he talked about how they would experience affliction, but the Word of God helped them through the affliction. So today in our chapter 3, this is how the church was established. He's talked about them being born. He's talked about how the church was nurtured. And then he's going to talk about how they are established. And if you know anything about building anything, Build, if you've ever built a house, and many of you have, if you don't have a firm foundation to put that house on, then what's going to happen down the road is the house won't be able to stand up under the forces that are outside of its control. Storms, wind, uh, floods, all of those kinds of things affect the house. You don't get to build a house and go, okay, uh, I'm going to put this house where none of those things will ever occur, Right? Because we live in a world where weather changes, especially in Missouri. We have one of the most diverse amounts of weather from 106 degrees all the way down to negative temperatures. And so it's like, how do I pick out what kind of siding I'm going to put on? Well, what handles the... Wait, I got to go through every possibility of weather. And, and so in the same way, our, our faith is the same thing. It has to have a firm foundation. There are many who are false teachers that talk about the power of our faith, and they would be the positive confession type people. If you say it enough times, then it will happen in your life. But faith is only as good as what it's placed in. If you put your faith in something that cannot stand the test of time, it's going to fail you. But if you put your faith in something that cannot and will not be moved and doesn't change, then it will never fail. Your faith has to be built upon something that cannot be moved. And so Paul has a concern for this church because of the persecution they're experiencing, because of the people that have come by afterwards, because Paul was only able to stay there, it says, for three Sabbaths. If he's only there for three Sabbaths and then he leaves, 
people are going to come in after him and teach other things. And if they're contradictory to what Paul said, they have to decide which one are we going to believe. And so Paul writes to them this letter to strengthen them and to establish them. So in chapter 3, verse 1, well, let's start in chapter 2, verse uh, 17. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul says, uh, We were only with you for a short time, uh, but we endeavor, we want to be with you in presence, face to face. Paul had a deep desire to be with them because he had only been with them for a short time. But then it says in verse 18, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but it says Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So what Paul is writing here is, he says, we were not we, we didn't want you to get saved just so we could write a bunch of numbers on our, on our, uh, our weekly uh, list that goes out to the people that support our ministry. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but many times uh, uh, leaders in ministry, they get so excited about the numbers of converts and their entire uh, rosters that are kept of these numbers of converts and basically, it's like a trophy room for some of these, especially like televangelists and stuff like that. And they'll, so they'll say, hey, 50 people came up to the altar and accepted the Lord this week, and we want to just send these numbers out to you so you'll continue to support us. And Paul says, um, my desire, my hope, my joy, my glory, my crown, this isn't like a kingly crown, this is like a victor's crown that you would receive after competing in Olympic events. He says, my crown of joy that I get to give to Jesus one day is that you would be in his presence. He says, it's not about you being converted to the faith and then never producing fruit. He says, my joy, my glory, my hope, my crown is that one day you would be perfected and brought to full maturity in the presence of our Lord and Savior. That's his hope. That's what Paul's goal was. And he strived towards this goal day and night. And I say that because Paul worked making tents all night long so that during the day he could preach the gospel, so that he could tell them about the love of the Savior, so that they could respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I need to repent, I need to change, and that they would give their lives over to their Savior to follow him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross, essentially die, and, take, and, and uh, follow me. Give up his own will and take up the will of the Father. Jesus said many times, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. And so we, in the same way, following in his example, are to seek his will for our lives. And I tell you what, once you find out what God's will is for your life, it simplifies everything. It, how many of you would love to have a more simple life? I, I all the time do. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where we, we want simplicity, but we do, because we don't know exactly what God wants us to do, we, we send all of our resources, time and money and effort and everything in so many different directions. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm limited. I only have so much uh, uh, pull myself up and go. 
I've only got so much oomph, so much horsepower. I only have so much volume. And at the end of that, I find out that I'm not God. I'm not, I don't have enough resources to do everything. Okay, Lord, I don't have enough resources to do anything. You've told me in your word that you're going to give me everything that I need in this life. And so if that's the case and I have a limited amount of resources, what is it that you want me to pour my life into? Well, Paul knew the will of the Lord. He knew that he was called to be an evangelist and a church planner. And he knew many times he wasn't able to stay there very long. He was called to go to another spot. But look at his heart here. He longs to be with them. He longs to be in their presence. He wants to give them more than he can give. And so because of that, it stretches his faith, and he calls these believers to be stretched as well. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, in light of what he's just said, he says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, he could no longer endure not knowing what was going on. Moms especially are good at this. Like, I see the heart of a mother in Paul here. When we can no longer endure to know how our kids are doing, we call them. Or we go and find them. Or, you know, it's like there's this deep desire in dads too, but more so you see it in moms. How's my kids doing? How are they? My mom, when I was off at college, she would call me all the time. She would always call me. I'd send her my schedule. I'd be like, I'm going to be in class during these times. She would never remember that. She just wanted to talk to me. She wanted to hear how I was doing. She wanted to hear the inflection in my voice. She wanted to hear if I felt, sounded sick. You know, it's just the heart of a mom to want to nurture and encourage. And that doesn't go away when they leave the house. And it used to drive me nuts. But now I look back and I go, it's because she still cares deeply about me. I have my own children now. I can see when it comes down the road, it's going to be that for us. But he says, uh, when we could no longer endure, as if this was a very long-term hardship for him. And it was. When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Paul sent them an encourager to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Now I'm going to stop for a minute, not because I have a point to make, but because I see a tow truck coming up. Steve, would you mind going and talk to him? The Lord helped us extract keys from Brian's car this morning. And so because of that, the tow truck doesn't necessarily know that. Um, his travels were in vain, but maybe he'll come to church. Who knows? <laughs> I should have said, Steve, invite him in. Nothing's a, nothing's a coincidence now. He'll still get paid. Come on. All right. I'll continue. So in verse 1, we see Paul expressing his concern for this church. He says to them, uh, we could no longer endure it, so we sent someone to know how you were doing. He couldn't himself go. Whatever the occurrence was, we don't know. It does say that he was in Athens, and it says that for some reason, Satan was hindering him from traveling, but he could still summon somebody else in his stead. So he sent Timothy, and look at this. He talks about not only his, his concern for them, but he didn't just send anybody. I'm sure Paul wasn't bored and didn't need any help. He probably needed lots of help, and he had others with him, but it looks to me like Timothy, over and over again, is one of the guys that he says, I, I put the most stock in this guy. 
I have no one else around me that has such a like-mindedness. I've got somebody that serves the Lord, and I agree with him all the time. We have unity, and he's a man of God, and he's, he says, so instead of keeping him to myself, I sent him to you. For what purpose? To establish you in the faith. He says, um, look at this guy. He sent Timothy, our brother, in other words, a, a brother in Christ, another believer, and a minister of God, a servant of God. The word minister does not mean something high and mighty. It means a servant. He's a servant of God, and he's our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. In other words, his lifestyle, the way that he serves the Lord, qualifies him to come and be with you and, and do what I would do if I could go. He says, in order to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. So first thing I want to say is that Paul warned them while he was with them for three weeks as new converts, he warned them and prepared them as new believers that just because they'd given their lives to follow Jesus doesn't mean that things will always be smooth from that point on. You're, you're converts, you believe in Jesus, you're following him, that doesn't mean your life gets easier. I don't know where the teaching comes from that tells people if you get saved, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, by the way he does. But that from that point on, life's going to be smooth sailing. Number one, look at our Savior. Was his life smooth sailing and easy? The guy died at 33. I'm older than that already. He had a rough life. He didn't have a place to live. God always provided his needs. He had things to eat because people shared with him. Um, but his life was not easy. Look at the Apostle Paul. He suffered over and over and over again, but that guy couldn't be stopped. He knew without a doubt, this is what God has called me to. And he knew that he was called to suffering. And Jesus even said that. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So it's not an easy life necessarily. So he had warned them. We also, if we know people who are new believers, it's not all up to the pastor. Other believers need to come alongside those new believers and encourage them. It won't necessarily get easier, but it's always going to be good. God's going to be there. He's going to meet your needs. He's going to establish you, and he will fulfill every promise that he's made to us in his word. So Timothy was sent to establish them in the faith. And I like this because in 1 John chapter 5, and I think I marked it, 1 John 5, <clears throat> I did not mark it. Oh, there it is. 1 John chapter 5, maybe I should get bigger words. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God, Paul speaking to these believers, and John writing to believers as well, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Notice what he says, our faith. Our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Our trust in that what God says especially in Jesus, is going to come to pass. It's going to be fulfilled. He's going to take care of us. And so Timothy went there, and he went there to establish and confirm them in the faith. 
chapter 3, verse 6, back in uh, 1 Thessalonians. I call this the encouragement exchange. Paul wanted to encourage them. He wanted to add to their faith. He sent Timothy to do so. But in verse 6, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's already gone and he's already returned, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Uh, You know, we're not supposed to live through our children. I don't know if you guys know that or not. But we're not supposed to find our identity in our children. Now, we struggle with that, but we're not. They're not our identity. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. But I think there is a godly way to live through our children. And it's not so much looking at their accomplishments and saying, hey, I succeeded, but more along the lines of imparting to them our faith. We get to live out our faith in the lives and in the presence of our children and hope in hope that we would implant that into them. We transplant it. Now, they have to make a decision whether or not on their own they're going to follow Jesus. But we can be those, like Timothy, that went alongside the Thessalonican believers and encouraged them in it. You know, we get to channel any tiny amount of faith that they have in the right direction. So in the same way, Paul here, he says, now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us that they still have a high regard for Paul, even though there's been teachers that have come behind him and said, Paul is not what he says he is. uh, He just came here because he basically got to be prideful about all the work that he did here. He's just looking at it as another another mark on his gun barrel. You know, you watch the old westerns and these these, uh, guys that would go out there and they would, you know, the outlaws, they would shoot people you know, for whatever reason. And they would go out there and they'd pick them off and they'd put a little notch on their barrel. I killed this many people. And so if you caught somebody that had their barrel all marked up, you're like, you don't want to mess with him. You know, that was kind of a sign. Well, Paul was not going out and making disciples to show people how great he was as a, as a minister of the gospel. He was doing it so that he could take as many people with him to heaven. But it says here that he brought them good news that they were continuing the faith. Paul, again, was not trying to make sure he had a bunch of converts that crawled around like babies and never really came to maturity. He, his desire, like our desire as parents, should not to be, be to raise children that are alive. My wife came home from a weekend at camp, and I said, I'm sorry I wasn't as effective as I probably could have been because I was sick. And she looked at me, and she goes, they're alive, aren't they? <laughs> and that is one goal, to keep the children alive. I, I won't, you know, I mean, I did do that. That was an accomplishment. I mean, if you've ever seen me with the kids, you'd be like, I wouldn't leave my kids with him, you know. But, but my point is, is that many times our goal in making disciples is not to make disciples, but to make converts. And because of that, we have a bunch of people that have been converted into faith that have never really entered in to maturity, If you read the Old Testament and you see that God made this people, he called them out, he called Abraham out of an idolatrous generation, a group of people that served and worshipped idols. 
And then he raised up a son. And there's all kinds of stories that go along with that. But as he ends up, all of Israel's children go into Egypt for a time so that the uh, iniquity of the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites and the, you know, the termites, all of them that went into the, the, that were in the land of Canaan, God was going to give that land to the Israelites, right? And so he promised this to them. And so what he did was he called them out. He used Moses to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, they crossed over the Red Sea miraculously. Um, and as they entered into this wilderness land in between Egypt and the promised land, they stayed there for 40 years because of unbelief, never really entering into what God had promised them. And many times, converts are delivered through the Red Sea, but they never enter into the promised land. And it says there, because of unbelief, they stayed in the, the land in between for 40 years, and an entire generation of people died, never entering into the promise of the land that God promised them. It was their possession, but they never grasped it. And as far as our faith is concerned, many times we get saved and we stay in this wilderness land. And let me tell you, that was a desert place. I spent years and years understanding the gospel, but never entering into the promise. When I went off to college, because I hadn't fully embraced the gospel of Jesus, I was in a wilderness and I was miserable. I wanted to trust God, but I still wanted to follow my own appetites. I still missed all the things. And so you know what I did? I partook of all the world gave me. And because of that, I was never truly converted. But when I got out of college, God was faithful. And he put people in my life that pointed me to Jesus. And when I look back on that time, I look back and I don't see that I was saved but wasting my life. I look back and I go, I was never truly converted. I wasn't really trusting in Jesus. I was trusting in my own appetites, and I was a slave to them, trust me. But the, the graciousness of God to continue to pursue me. So Paul expresses to them that <clears throat> when Timothy went to the Thessalonian church, he says, may the Lord make, excuse me, I skipped down. He says, uh, he came back with good news of your faith and your love, and that you always have good remembrance of us. And so he says, um, basically, uh, like, we get excited when somebody becomes a new believer. I, I hope you do. When someone decides that they want to give their life to follow Jesus Christ, it should be an exciting thing. Just like when we get a birth announcement in the paper of someone we know. Oh, praise the Lord, they have a healthy baby. A new being in their family that's going to be raised up. But the excitement that we get when we hear of a new convert shouldn't go away. Older believers, as older believers not by age, but by time walking with the Lord, we should hear the good news of others believing, being nurtured, and being proven and established through trials, and that should bring us great joy, especially if we've invested in them, especially if we've spent time with them and tried to come alongside and encourage them. So, verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice... For your sake, before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul has this deep desire to go and be with these believers, and he says to add to their faith whatever they lack. 
Do you know as we as believers are not perfected, are not fully mature until the day that we see Jesus face to face? As believers, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, there's always something that can be added to our faith. There's always something that can be continually built onto our firm foundation. Just like a house, there's, you're never done working on the thing. It always has something you can upgrade, right? Um, in the same way, our faith is the same. And I say that because Paul here, he has a desire to go to these people who have already been converted. They are disciples of Jesus. But have you ever noticed that God saves us, he grows us, and he uh, makes us firm in our faith so that we can be established and we can stand and withstand through trials. But he many times doesn't just do it by uh, speaking to us specifically things that we need to know. Sometimes he uses other believers. And I say that because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, I've already referred to it once. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. Imagine that as believers. Sometimes we need to be corrected in the things that we believe that are not true. He says, uh, For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. That word is mature. That means whole, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants to continue to equip us. And he does that in many ways. But for that, I want to take you to um, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> he says there in verse 5 of 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, Peter writes to them, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things uh, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, so you've been saved, and you've been saved because you've heard and welcomed the word of God. He says, and you have faith now in the Son of God for your salvation. You can't do anything to add to it, but he says this, be diligent to add to your faith. And then he lists out these things, and as, as you read through that list, I want you to notice that these things can be added to your faith, but it takes other people helping you along the way to add them. We need each other as the body of Christ. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Uh, we need our kimosabi. We need the, the other person that works alongside with us. And I say that because Jesus had 12 disciples. And notice when he sent them out, even when it was a larger group, he sent them out two by two. 
We need people to come alongside us and add to our faith the things that we lack. You know, many times it's like a puzzle. You put a puzzle together and there's holes in each piece. But each piece that's meant to go alongside it has the piece that corresponds and fills that hole. And when you get done, you see the full picture. It's like a mosaic. All those pictures make a a larger picture that we can't see when we're so zoomed in on our own lives. But God is painting a poem or a poema, a masterpiece. And when you zoom out from that mosaic, if you you guys ever seen mosaics, it's just like tiny pictures that all make up this gigantic picture that's even a bigger, you know, fulfillment. And when you see it, it's a masterpiece that's made up of tiny masterpieces. And that's the body of Christ. That's the kingdom of God. It's made up of you and me, individual pieces that God has formed and fit together to meet each other's needs and to fulfill what the other one doesn't have. Like I said earlier, we're limited, uh, but the kingdom of God has everything that it needs. And so Paul has sent someone to them. He has written a letter to them. And now he says in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God, he begins his prayer, he's, it's almost like he's writing, and then in the middle of his writing, he starts writing out what he prays for them. And, and sometimes I think we talk way more than we pray. Um, but here's the deal, when we will actually have a deep desire to meet someone's needs, and then we come to the end of ourselves and realize that we're not meant to be the one to meet all their needs, we will begin to pray for them because each one of us could use a little extra prayer from one another. He says, now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. He says, may God direct us to where you are, to be with you. That's his deep desire. We see it over and over in this chapter. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. He says, I'm meant to encourage you and establish you, but you guys are meant to encourage and establish each other. And then he says, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's going to establish our hearts. Notice, blameless. What does that mean, blameless? To be people that cannot be in reproach of anyone. If so, this means that if, if someone were to accuse you of something, that the people that heard the accusation because of your reputation would say, he'd never do that. Or that, that can't be true because I've seen this, 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 and this. But not just one person that is a little biased, you know, like your mom. Moms oftentimes, I, I've been talking about moms, but I think about it many times. Moms, can, my, my own mom, oh, you could do no wrong. Mom, have you ever, like, you don't remember anything from my growing up? You don't remember the time I threw the barbecue lid, grill lid at my brother? Like, blameless? Seriously? You know, he can do no wrong. He has before, but he can do no wrong now. Well, it doesn't mean perfection, but it just means to have a continued character that is blameless in the sight of the Lord. He says that your hearts may be established blameless and in holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, at the return of Jesus, that we would be established that we would be found to be without wavering. 
Notice what he had said back in verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Remember, they're experiencing affliction and persecution. That word shaken there is important. In the old King James, it means to be moved, that, we, that no one would be moved by affliction. And I say that because this is where the fall happened. Uh, we have Adam and Eve who were, had a relationship with God, and they were tempted in the garden, okay? And then Satan came along. They had already been instructed. You, you're to tend the garden, you're to master it, multiply it, and you're to multiply yourselves. But then he said, don't eat of that one tree. And then Satan came along, and he did what this word means. Uh, the word shaken or moved means to wag the tail or to fawn over. Satan flatters believers in order to bring them around to disobey God. He flattered Eve. He said, hey, you won't surely die if you eat that fruit. He's just afraid that you'll become like him, and then he won't have preeminence over you. And don't you notice how tasty and how good that fruit is for you? And then what happened was, because of hurt, knowing what God said, but also kind of doubting what God said because of the word of Satan, he, she decided to partake of the fruit, and then she gave it to her husband. And so we, in the same way, when we are being afflicted, Satan comes along and says, hey, I thought God said he cared about you. Why is he allowing this thing to happen in your life? Why is he, you know, you're better than this. You don't need to suffer. He's tempting us. He's flattering us. And I think Satan is way more effective when he flatters us than when he afflicts us because we like to be flattered. We like to be told, hey, you're awesome. You're good. You don't need all this. If God's got his best interest in mind, why are, why are you suffering right now? And in those moments, we find out whether we trust the Lord or our feelings. And so here we are. Paul writes to them. He, he prays for them. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness. God wants to establish our hearts so that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what we're being tempted to do, that we'll say yes to him and no to ourselves, that we'll say yes to him and no to what our friends think of us, that we'll say yes to his plan, his will, and no to whatever we might desire outside of that, you know, whether it's sin or whether it's something good that God's not called us to. And so as we close, I want to go over three ways that Paul sought to establish their faith in Jesus. Verse 1 through 5, he sent them a helper. He sent them Timothy, which I find interesting because in John chapter 14, Jesus, only being with his disciples for a short time and being pulled away, he had to go to the cross, he had to die for our sins. He told them ahead of time, I'm going to go to the Father. But then he says, a little while longer, verse 19, John 14, 19, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But look at this, verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. So he tells them, my presence will continue to be with you. The Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things and will bring remembrance to you of all the things that I spoke to you. So in our afflictions, in those times of trials, in our times of doubt, We've been promised that though Jesus can't be with us physically anymore, he was with the disciples, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in each believer to strengthen us. And many times we see that as, well, it's just me and God. But he's also called us out of the world and into this assembly so that we can hear from the Holy Spirit and we can also speak into other people's lives and come alongside. And when they're doubting the most, when they're hearing from the Lord, the Lord the, most, the least, and they're discouraged and they feel like they're by themselves, that he can bring people alongside and say, hey, it's okay, God's still good. And I know you're suffering and I want to be with you in this suffering. And I want to establish you. Don't let go. Don't give up. God's still with you. But the, for this time, you're suffering and I'm going to pray for you daily, or whatever it is. God uses us in each other's lives. So he sent them a helper. He sent them Timothy. Verse 6 through 8, he wrote them a letter. He personally contacted them. He personally contacted them. Let me ask you, are there people in your life that you know that God has called you to? And if there's not, realize that there are people in your life that he's called you to, to encourage them in their faith. Help them. Be with them in their trials and in their joys. Contact them personally throughout the week. Don't let Sunday be the only time you talk to people about their faith and encourage them. They need it. We all need it. And then, verse 9 through 13, he prayed for them. He prayed for them. The Word of God is good, and it's useful for instruction, for correction, for all those things, but we also need to pray for one another. And if God's called you to specific people, and he's called each one of us to go and make disciples. He's called each one of us to go and make disciples. Do you do that? And if you do, are these things present? Do you help them along? Are you present in their lives like Timothy was? Are you contacting them personally and, and letting them know, hey, you're, you're praying for them? Are you praying for them? Because if you'll do these three things, you will be effective. You will be fruitful for the glory of the Lord. And so I would encourage you, hopefully challenge you this week, pray. Say, Lord, who do you want me to invest in? And realize you can't invest in everyone. And number two, uh, contact them throughout each week and encourage them. And number three, pray for them. Paul says he prayed for them exceedingly, and he prayed that their faith would be made mature. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for Paul's heart as he explained in chapter 2, uh, as, as his heart of a father to challenge 
and encourage and to, uh, to bring things to light, but also the heart of a mother who cherishes her children and nourishes them uh, through pouring her own life into them. Lord, I thank you for Paul's heart for your followers, Lord. And I thank you for his desire to make disciples wherever he went. I thank you that the disciples that he made because of the report, the good news, the gospel, because of them being faithful and continuing in the faith, even though they experienced afflictions, that it encouraged Paul. So, Father, may we have the opportunity to be encouraged by those that we invest in. But whether or not they uh, continue in the faith, Lord, help us to make disciples. Help us to invest in other people's lives. Help us to make this life of faith more than just about ourselves. Lord, you've called each one of us to a group of people, and my prayer is that of Paul's, that we would be firmly established in the faith ourselves, and that we would pour into the lives of others so that they would be firmly established in the faith as well, so that we would abound, so that we would overflow, so that we would be fruitful for the glory of your kingdom, Lord. Thank you so much for this opportunity to gather And uh, we just confess to you once again how much we need you. Lord, uh, let us not be discouraged. Let us be spurred on by one another. In Jesus' name, amen.